0: Our lesson this evening is to continue in the book of Hebrews. It will be found in the 12th chapter of that epistle. I would like to read for you, beginning at verse 1, down to the 15th verse. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 15. This is a larger section. our God's word. Therefore let us also seeing we are compassed about with so great a company of witnesses, <coughs> lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before us endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that has endured such gainsaying of sinners against himself, that you wax not weary, fainting in your soul. You have not resisted unto blood yet, striving against them. And you have forgotten the exhortation which reasons with you as with some. My son, regard not lightly the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved of him. For whom the Lord loves and chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. It is for chastening that you endure. God deals with you as his son, for what son is there whom his father chastens not? But if you are without chastening, whereof all have been made partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we had the fathers of our flesh to chasten us, and we gave them reverence shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of Spirit and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed good to them, that he for our prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness. All chastening seems for the present to be not joyous, but grievous. Yet afterward it yields peaceable fruit unto them that have been exercised thereby, even the truth of righteousness. Wherefore, lift up the hands that hang down, and the palsy of the knee, and make straight paths for your feet. But that which is lame, be not turned out of the way, but rather revealed. That's part of the reading God's words. The opening um, verses of <coughs> chapter 12 were dealt with last week, where uh, I argued, mildly argued, that it seems to me they finish off chapter 11 much better, and that we probably shouldn't insert some major kind of break at this point. But therefore, at the beginning of what we call chapter 12, carries on to chapter 11, uh, which is told us about those who um, were faithful, active, and obedient thanks to the old covenant. And we would therefore let up also. <coughs> what also shows the tie in. In the same way that they did these things, let us also, seeing that we're compassed about with this great company of witnesses of the old covenant, let us do what they did, and that is, lay aside every weight or encumbrance, every obstacle, and especially the sin that so easily gets us down, gets us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The author at this point begins to use the metaphor of an athlete particularly a runner, like an Olympic runner. And this uh, metaphor is going to carry on all the way through the 13th verse. Um, And so I'll uh, keep referring back to that. We're running a race, he says, and to win the race, we must do it with endurance, with perseverance. We must push hard. We must keep our eyes on the goal. You know, when you're running a race, and if you're serious about winning, you don't run, you know, looking all around. Now, There are some people who will run looking for their competition, and I could divide (coughs) it you know, uh, commentary, and whether that's a good idea or a bad probably it's a bad idea if my uh, best guess, but uh, I'm not talking about somebody who's just looking to see where's the guy that's, you know, my best competition. You know, you don't. Look around at the audience, you know, and the rose bushes, and the clouds, and everything else, and you're running a race your eyes right on the goal line. And the author says, keep your eyes trained on Jesus, who is the author and perfected by faith. And it's this really beautiful description of what Jesus has done. The author says, of the joy that was set before him, in the same way that something has been set before us, it be especially on heart to the end, Jesus too had something that was set before him, and it was joy. But again, I remind you that the joy that Jesus received for the work he did was not joy his salvation or his exaltation. He had all glory of the Father from the very beginning. He came into this world that we might be brought into that fellowship. He came into this world that we might be saved. And for the joy of saving us, he did what? He endured the cross, despising the shame I emphasized last week, that expression, despising the shame, because that was the most shameful way for a person to die in the world. So much so that it was against Roman law for any Roman citizen to be crucified. Jesus, for the joy that was are being here in saving us, endured the cross despising the shame of the cross, and it's not that down at the right hand of the Son of God. Now we begin tonight's question at the third verse. For consider him that has endured such hostility of sinners against themselves that you not become weary or faint-hearted. The author obviously sees the readers as showing signs of growing weary and faint-hearted. They're failing to persevere in this Christian race, and you know, the imagery: because mm-hmm. it says, now, you must <coughs> not become weary. I still uh, have pictures in my mind watching Olympic runners, even Olympic runners, who, like in a marathon or something, finally become weary. know some don't even finish that race so far and so forth. The author says, you're in a tough race, and it's important that you not grow weary, that you not become faint-hearted in this race. And uh, I don't know whether it's just me, and I'm reading more into this text because of my own circumstances, but it seems to me that's the sort of thing that would be um, eye-catching it's for all exactly. of us. The author is worried that we might become weary and faint-hearted. Isn't that part of the up and down of the Christian life? We're always facing discouragement. We get tired. we say things like I didn't up for this. Yes. Why am I going through all this? And it's easy to become faint-hearted in Christian life.
1: It's easy
0: to become weary of this. And I've known people, uh, good people, intentions uh, are good and talented people who never <coughs> have given up on Christianity or on the church or whatever it may be because they wanted to really so sort weary of all the battles and the troubles that's going The author understands that and says, my readers have this problem. That's the underlying problem of the whole epistle, in fact. They're getting weary of the Christian um, battle. The race that they have to run, they're getting feeble need about. He will later use that expression. It says, you know, your hands are hanging (coughs) down, your knees are getting weak. You're not running the way you need to run. And, of course, the temptation that they're facing is to give up Christianity altogether. Let's just uh, take some examples here to show you the underlying thread. In, throughout the epistle of this problem. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that were heard, lest aptly we drift away from them. The author says, you're in danger of drifting away. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed, brothers, lest aptly there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. Now, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our confidence, firm unto the end, we must persevere. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us fear, therefore, lest after a promise being left of entering into his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Verse eleven. Let us therefore give diligence to enter into that rest, that no man fall after the same example of disobedience. Verse 16. Let us therefore draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy, and may find grace to help in time of need. Chapter six, verses four to fifth, famous verses, for such touching those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift, who were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fell away. It's impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put him put into open shame. Verse 11 of that chapter. We desire that each one of you may show the same diligence and the fullness of hope, even to the end. Chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, that it waver not, for he is faithful, that promised. Chapter 10, verse 26. <coughs> so if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, and a fierceness of fire which shall devour the application. Verses 35 and 6. <coughs> Cast not away, therefore, your boldness, which has great representative reward, for you have need of patience, or endurance, steadfastness, that, having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Verse 39. But so we are not of them that shrink back unto suspicion, but of them that have faith unto the saving <coughs> of the soul. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. He often doesn't let up. He says, I'm afraid you're going to give up your Christian faith. You're falling back. You're drifting away. You're going to deny the living God. You're going to recrucify the Son of God. You're not going to be saved. Press on. Press on. And so after a whole chapter, chapter 11, of examples of the witnesses to active obedience in the faith, with <coughs> of to the circumstances, he also says, now run hard. Look to Jesus and consider him. Who has endured such gains sinners against himself, that you not become weary of heart, uh, faint hearted. The call to act of obedient faith, which we saw in chapter eleven, now issues into this exhortation of chapter twelve, verse two, to run with Jesus before us, who is waiting at the end of the race with the crown. Remember how Paul says in Second Timothy four verses seven to eight that he is running, that he might receive that incorruptible crown. Let's read that. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, at the 7th verse. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous Judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but also to all them that have loved his appearance. All mixes two athletic metaphors here. Now the conclusion is, and that's why we attended this verse, because that the crown of righteousness is <coughs> him, and that the runner is running <coughs> road. But right. so what's the first metaphor he used? What kind of athletic context is he talking about? Fighting, the boxing. I have fought for good fight. I have finished my course, and I change it to the idea of the runner so forth. The interesting thing to me is. In Hebrews 12 chapter, which Paul didn't write, I'm not for Paul and we have the same mixture of uh, athletic contests, both boxing and running the race. And in the ancient world, one of the things, apparently, that they had in the Olympics was a pentathlon, which involved five events, one of which was boxing, one of which was running, but maybe it was a historical note of genuinity and the way that people <coughs> were run together by the author. But anyway, he says that we must um, not grow weary, not become uh, faint-hearted. And how are we going to do that? He says, by carefully considering him who endured such hostility against himself and sin. This is not Roman Catholicism. This is not morbid theology. The author says, I oh, want okay, you to stop and think of Jesus and do I want you Rushing it that. the word is a strong one. Reckon it out, calculate. What did Jesus do? And when you consider him who endured such opposition against himself, then it won't be easy for you to become weary or faint Compare the extent of Christ's suffering to your own. Compare the significance of Christ's suffering to your own. I feel very guilty teaching this lesson. It's going to tough for all these things that are hard to endure and so forth. But you're talking about what Jesus went through. And you know, nothing is that I've done here in all my life, if you add it all together, it doesn't come in with just the comparison but Jesus did. The hostility that Jesus went through is greater than anything we will ever experience. Go to John the 15th chapter, verse 18. John 15, 18. Jesus warned his followers of this right before he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane to be betrayed and then tried and finally crucified. John 14, 15, and 16, we have what are known as the upper room discourses of Jesus. And I want you to look at the 15th chapter beginning at verse 18. This is what Jesus um, (coughs) taught his followers. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love itself. But because you're not of the world, that I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, a servant is not greater than his lord. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, also. But all these things, will they do unto you for my name, sake, because they know not him to sin. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He that hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other did, they had not had sinned. But now they have both seen and hated both me and my Father. For this comes to pass that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law, who hated me without a cause. So For in the counsel of this son, whom I send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father, we shall bear witness of me. And you also bear witness, because you have been witnessing from the beginning. These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be caused to stumble. They shall put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the hour comes, but whosoever kills you shall think you <coughs> offer service unto God. And these things will they do because they have not known the Father in Me. things. But these things have I spoken unto you that when your hours come you may remember them. How that I told you. And these things I said not unto you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I go unto him that sent me and unto you and him you go and so forth. Jesus says, the world's going to hate you because they hate me. And the servant's not above his master. If they persecuted me, you got to believe they're going to persecute you. The Bible says, consider that hostility to so was directed to Jesus. You look at Jesus. He doesn't say, I've been misunderstood. I haven't had good public relations. People that hate me. Because I have said and done things that, exposed. it's crazy. And not only do they hate me, but as a matter of fact, they hate the Father that sent me. So it might be fulfilled in what was said in their law. They have created me without a crime. That is it. Sometimes there's understand why people don't like us. They hate us, despise us. Because we know very well we've done things that haven't been all that long. We have false in our character, our behavior, our words that call for a negative response in the heart. But the law says that when the Son of God says, they hated him without him. How does it give you that war has? Consider that kind of hatred, that intensity. Think about it, the author of Hebrews says. Look also at um, verse 2 of Hebrews 12. endured the reception for him, endured what? Endured the cross? How many of you can prove it? How many of you have to despise your shame of the most wretched form of social rejection that Jesus has given? First 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 and 23, Paul actually claims say about the humiliation of Jesus, the hatred that was shown toward him, and the shame of what happened. For the word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us that are saved is the power of God. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified unto Jews a stumbling block, unto Gentiles foolishness. Now just consider the turn of the phrase in Philippians 2, verse 8, where Paul is speaking about the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Says in being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming in obedient even unto death, yet the death of the cross. It's not enough that Jesus became a man and became a servant among men and died a sinless death, but he died the most and the cross, yes, even cross. So the author of Hebrews says, consider this one. Consider him that has endured such hostility of sin against himself. Because when you do that, it will not be <coughs> it, you will not so readily become weary in the Christian battle. You become faint-hearted in the race that is set before you. Before we move on, I just want to make one more comment about the hostility of sinness against Jesus. Not only did they hate him without a cause, but you know, this is something I can't ever get over no emotionally. Why would sinners hate the one who came to save them from his the sin? The world does well, the not simply say, well, Jesus is going to want us to we don't believe it. Let's move on. The world hates him for God. The world hates to save him. And then he becomes saved to on the cross things. So for the forgiveness of those who crucified. keep <coughs> <coughs> part of our thought you're a good example, walking forward, the 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 Spirit. I know. to to pay down for they don't know forgiveness. This is the person that you need to think about and reflect on. him who endured that kind of hostility the way he did. And in verse 4, the author of Hebrews says, In comparing your suffering to Jesus, remember that you have not yet resisted to the point that he blood. Now these people have endured suffering, however. Remember chapter ten gives us a little historical insight. Chapter 10, verse 32, to call to remembrance the former days, in which after you were enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly being made a stock, stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly becoming partakers with them that were so used. So you both had <coughs> compassion on them that were in bonds and prison, and took joyfully the spoiler of your own possession, knowing that you had yourselves a better possession and abiding one. Christians have already been made a gazing stock and reproach. They've been cast into prison. They've had their property plundered. But the author tells us, you have not yet resisted to the point of martyrdom. Notice, yet. Nothing else is coming. And that's why, invading this epistle, was well, a long time ago when we began this study, wasn't it? You may remember the introductory studies I said, we probably should date this epistle sometime after the beginning of Nero's reign but before the outbreak of the fiercest of the Roman persecution. Because at that point Christians started dying for their faith. And so, as the officers says, you have not yet begun to be martyred, but the goods have been spoiled and after the gap the prison. We have the earliest phases of the persecution that um, is now going on. Because remember, so that you don't, you know, begin to pity yourself, you have not endured to the point of shedding blood. Christ, on the other hand, if you consider the one who died for the sins, Christ came into this world precisely to, to, to shed his blood on our behalf. And our redemption depends upon that blood shedding. Chapter 9, verse 12. Nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but Through his own blood, he entered in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. I think the author is trying to tell people, consider Jesus, he was willing to lay down his life for you. So why should you become weary, even if you consider the prospect of martyrdom, which is not yet here, but is very likely coming? (coughs) The prospect of our own blood being shed, will not deter us from staying in the Christian race to the very finish if we remember the bloodshed of Jesus Christ himself on our behalf. Put it very simply, and I'm show sure you've heard messages of this seen, but it's rooted, very firmly rooted in the text of Scripture. If Jesus died for us, why should we not be willing to die for him? To live our lives for him even to the point of death. Now, what is the effect of... Uh, when, when persecution comes and Christians are martyred and the blood is shed for the sake of the faith and their fidelity to Jesus Christ, does that tend to stomp out the Christian church? It's ironic, isn't it? If Tony probably is thinking of the same expression yeah. here. to think about church history, we have this remark <coughs> that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church gets really strong in days of persecution. You know, none of us should pray for persecution, none of us should be massive, you know, and go out and look for suffering and trouble. But in this world, if you live a godly life, you're going to endure persecution, we said the Bible assures us of that. But you know, when the church does go through bad days, we need to realize that doesn't mean it goes through bad days. When the world lives us a bad time, God used to suffer, strengthen the church. and, and Truly, when people are mugged to the Christian faith, that actually draws with people to them in, It shows how genuine our faith is. The blood of the Muslims is the fruit of the church. This is 5-8. And not only have you not considered him who endured this hostility of sin, not only have you forgotten that you've not resisted unto blood, but you've also forgotten the expectation that reasons with you are strong. Here's a third reason why they shouldn't fall back in the face of the persecution they're undergoing. You've misread your situation, the author says. You've taken hardship and affliction to mean that God is not concerned with your welfare, that you're on the wrong path. In fact, hardship and affliction should remind you of God's constant presence and His provision for you. This is a tricky thing that the author doing. What he's saying is the evidence that you might use to suggest maybe you're going the wrong way and God doesn't care for you is precisely the evidence that I will use to show you that he does. God puts us into times of affliction and hardship that so we might learn all the more how he is with us and provides for us to no another what. <coughs> Did Paul have to learn that lesson? emotion packed words of the new test. Paul talks about that corn in the flesh that he had and three times he stopped the Lord to lose it. And God's message back to Paul, God's requirement, our grace and sufficiently. And Paul says, and so I have learned to glory in, in strength, in weakness. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. And it's just really times of affliction times kind of hardship and heartbreak in our lives that we realize yes, how close God really is. Is that just the time that we say, I'm at, I'm untapped out, I have nothing else, no other strength in myself to deal with the situation, that we finally say, oh, I think God must be the one who's the one to Isn't that ironic? The very evidence that the world would view and say God doesn't care, the opposite is evidence that God really does care for you. What the readers were in danger of forgetting is the wisdom and exhortation of the book of Proverbs. Oh, I love this because the personal preaching through the book of Proverbs. The author here says, You've forgotten the message of Proverbs. What's the assumption? The assumption is that they studied the book of Proverbs, that they're internalizing the wisdom of that book, they're putting it to use. The book of Proverbs is not the kind I told you this before. I told you. This book of Proverbs. you know, that's the sort of thing you look at and say, "That's interesting. I learned something." And go on. You keep going back and going back. And have a constant advice, and wisdom for it. At the beginning of my series on Proverbs, I suggested that we should read one chapter of Proverbs every day. It's 31, so that's about a month. Every month, reading the book of Proverbs. Can you imagine what your life, how your life would change if you read the book of Proverbs like that for ten years straight? Well. The author says, you've forgotten. You've forgotten the expectation that reasons with you as with sons. Apparently, the wisdom of the book of Proverbs is crucial in tough times. And what Proverbs would have taught them is God's not neglecting you. He's treating you like sons are feeding. He's taking you. The very things that lead you to think that they not care for you are the proofs of your sons, is your children. And so Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12 is recited. My son, regard not lightly the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved of them, For whom the Lord loves the chasen, and chastens and searches every time that he receives. The author <coughs> suggests that what the Old Testament teaches has direct relevance today. I, I find that's an interesting move, too. The author does not say, now I know this is the Old Testament, and we've got to make some special provision for you <coughs> He just quotes it, is quoted, and the students to show them. In fact, he says, you've forgotten the expectation which reasons with you. As such, right. The author, it's, it's not really a mistake, but technically, it's incorrect. Proverbs doesn't reason with those people. Proverbs reasons with people living many years ago. But he says, is, well, it has just been written today for you. One of the strongest indications in the New Testament that the Old Testament is binding on it today is the way the New Testament does that. This is speaking to you right now. And you've forgotten the wisdom that it imparts. It is discipline, or chastening, as my uh, translation it. It is discipline that proves the reality of sonship. Discipline is not a mark of harshness. It's a mark of loving concern. And if God is putting you through a time of chastening and discipline, he's educating and correcting you and building you up. And if he didn't do that, the author says, you should conclude that you're really illegitimate and unwanted children. You see what I say about a tricky thing that is? The author um, takes the very situation, but it's tempting <coughs> us to wonder whether God cares for us, because that's he's very true the it's son, to the day. He's giving you sons because sons are chastened. course, Proverbs has a lot to say about it. this idea that uh, chastening is a sign of love rather than a sign of hatred. Proverbs 16:24. let me review this few things we have studied already in that verse. He that spares his rod hates his sons. He that loves him, chastens him, may high. Proverbs 22, verse 16. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Mm Chapter 23, 13. Withhold not correction from the child, for if you beat him with the rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from shield. Because The book of Proverbs tells us that fatherly love brings chastening, brings discipline. And so God, being our heavenly father, is chastening us for our own good. <coughs> now, we've all like been sitting there thinking, doing anything this. Is this me that in tough times coming into my life? God is punishing me for my fear? None of this would be off Robert doesn't say, you've been bad boys and girls, and so now here's how God treats you, when you've been bad boys and girls. Not at all. says God sometimes gives us affliction, as Jonathan Edwards says, put thorns in our bed for our own good. Not as a way of punishing us, but as a way of disciplining us. <coughs> it is for chastening that you endure. Why? <coughs> yes, because you as sons. For what son is there whom the father chastens not? But if it we were without chastening, whereof all of them made partakers of your bastards and not sons, furthermore, we had fathers of our flesh to chasten us, and we gave them reverence, shall we not much rather be in subjection under the Father's Spirit than live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, it seemed good to them, but he for our prophets, that so we may become partakers of his holiness. In verses 9 and 10, we read what's called an a fortiori argument from the lesser to the greater. How much more? Now, in this world, <coughs> we've had fathers, by flesh, who chastened us. And you know very well in this world, that the father doesn't chasten his son, he isn't going really love us. How much more, then, do your heavenly father show his love by chastening you? God disciplines us, the author says, for our good. Romans 8 twenty eight. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God chases us for our good. I have a film or two that deals with this <laughs> matter, and I don't pretend that I live up to what I preach there, but I, we all should try better. And I talked about tough thank the ability to take answer to God for putting me in bad hands. To really believe that, say God you're going to do something great in this situation. You're really showing that you love me in this situation. When you feel the very opposite from outward circumstances, you want to say thank you, because you're doing this for my good. Somehow, it's going to work out for my good. And ultimately, the <coughs> goal is that we should share in His holiness. 1 Peter 1, verse 15, Peter quotes Leviticus, be holy, for I am holy. Word. Holiness is what we call a communicable attribute of God. A communicable attribute is one that is communicated, that is shared by both God and man. There are some attributes that we do not share with God, such as immutability. We are not unchangeable; he is. But an attribute that we are supposed to share with God is holiness. We are the share in his holiness. So Those communicable attributes. notice we share in his holiness, he does not share in ours. This holiness is not some kind of third-party neutral concept that God and man both are looking up to and trying to participate in. God is very precisely with we share in his holiness. When we obey his word, we are holy as he is holy. There's no holiness above God that he looks to and we look to and share in, but rather it's his own personal holiness that we share in and we obey him. In fact, salvation is precisely the sphere of holiness. Look at what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. For God called us not into uncleanness, but in, and I have sanctification, we get have holiness. God's call to us for salvation is a call to dwell in the sphere of holiness. And God's work of saving us is precisely a work of sanctifying us. The book of Hebrews (coughs) talks about salvation as (coughs) sanctification. Hebrews 2.11. For both he that sanctify it, and they that are sanctified are all of one, for which God is not ashamed to call them brothers. Here's a reference to salvation, but the author's distinctive concept is being made holy. That's salvation. Being made holy. Sanctified. And this is especially coming up in the passage before us at verse 14, which we won't study tonight, but uh, notice this. Follow after peace with all men and the sanctification without which no man shall see the Lord. And so why does God chasten us? For our good, and that we might share in his holiness. Philip Edge confused, put very in a very sickly way and helpful. He says how easily the desire for holiness is set aside when our worldly affairs mm-hmm. are proceeding smoothly and comfortably. How easily the desire for holiness is set aside when our worldly affairs is it achieved us. I see the all novel. I'm not included. It's a shameful thing, but it's true. If things are going well in our lives, we could have war. They're only going well in our lives because of God's blessing. Only because of his poverty. Because of his care. And yet, for some reason, things are like that. If things are going well in our worldly affairs, we don't care much about holiness. It's only when God puts in our bed all that we? So we wake up and we just return to, to godly character holiness of the angels. And so God's fatherly discipline teaches us not <clears throat> to rely upon ourselves, but to see and uh, excuse me, not to rely upon, rely upon ourselves and not to seek earthly security, but rather to look to sin and trust him. Why didn't God take the thorn out of Paul's flesh? I mean if God were going to rate on a scale of value to the kingdom, and what's been endured to the kingdom, and what I consider holiness, the character the commitment to Christ, Paul should rate right up there. And yet God chose not to take the thorn of flesh out of his flesh, the thorn out of Paul's flesh. And Paul of these things. to him. And I should tell you that when Paul says three times, I don't think that means one, two, three. Three times is an expression given in Greek and Hebrew for the highest. Paul says, I refuse to obey God to take it away, whatever the toil the same was. But why didn't he? Because Paul was learning a very wonderful lesson that when he was weak, yes, he was strong. When he was weak in his own resources, he had the strength of God behind him. And so remember this. When bad things happen to you and you come in times of affliction, persecution, hardship, maybe even martyrdom is being faced, don't think that God is doing that because he's punishing you you've been bad. God may very well be doing that because he loves you so much and he treats you like a son. He says, I want you to, to look to me. Don't become <coughs> self-reliant. This will really help you to go through this punishment. The verse, um, verse 9 uses the expression, the Father of Spirit. And I'm not going to get into a long theological haggle with you tonight, but I want to point out that this has commonly been used by people who want to support what's called creationism in the view of man's soul. I you all are, you all first up with that. What is the debate? Well, there are two views as to the origin of man's soul. The one view, the creationist view, is that everything human being that is born into this world has a soul created right then and there for him or her. That so God immediately creates the soul, the spirit, for that person. The other view, called seductionism, is the view that the soul is just part of human nature and that it's passed down, as it were, from generation to generation. So when parents give birth... Through the body of a child, they also give birth to the child who's having a soul. And God doesn't create a special soul for every individual. That's just part of the human nature that it's passed down with everybody. Sound like the sort of thing we had a debate long and hard. If <laughs> <laughs> I, I had time, I could show you some practical applications of it, but I'm not going to get into it. My point is, tonight, this verse doesn't support creation. But so you see why people might think that it does? It's The contrast here is fathers of the flesh and the father of spirits. And so we had the fathers of our flesh, that is to say, those who gave birth to our bodies, and then we had the father of spirits who gave birth to our souls. A number of commentators throughout history have gone to this verse to prove that point. But of course, God is the father of both body and spirit, isn't he? The fatherhood of our humanity is not divided between man, who gives us flesh, and God, who gives us spirit. That may sound initially attractive, but in the end, it's God who gives us flesh and spirit. And then there's another problem with the tradition of creation debate, and this is fairly technical, but I don't believe that either one of them had the right view of the human soul anyway. They're really looking at the soul in a platonic way as something that's poured into a vessel. You know, you have this machine <coughs> or this body, and then the ghost or the soul is poured into it. It either comes equipped with it, you know, from the factory, or it's poured in at the last minute, you know, as the child's being born. But the problem is that it seems the soul is some kind of thing that you pour into the body. It's easy. To, probably many of you think that way, and that's why you're running out, for what? <laughs> That's not really a biblical view of the soul. That's a Platonic view of the soul. And uh, that just makes the debate all the more worthless. What does the Father of the mean then? Well, in Numbers 16.22 and 27.16, we see another expression. Um, Why don't we look at one of those? Numbers 16.22. It's not the same expression, but I think it has the same meaning as this Father of Spirits. Number 16.23. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man stand where you be lost with all the congregation. God, who is the God of the spirits of all flesh. The word spiritual refers to life. He's the God of all the living, the Father of Spirit. He's the one from whom we receive life. So the contrast is between our earthly fathers, that is, fathers of the flesh. I'm going to, skip to the last three verses here real briefly in our remaining moments. The author goes on to say, All chastening seems for the present to be not joyous but grievous. But afterwards, it yields peaceable fruit to the that have been exercised thereby, even the fruit of righteousness. Therefore, lift up the hands that hang down in the palsy knees and make straight paths for your feet. God don't break training. Is that a template? Don't break training. All chastings seem for the present not to be joyous. Think about those football players, late in August, working out in the heat of Southern California lifting weights, and running their laps, and hitting the dummies, and running their plays, and so forth. Do you think that's fun? You hear these guys work so hard, some of them are out there retching on the football field. They're so sick to their stomach, because they're working <coughs> so hard. Do you think that's fun? No, but all the training of an athlete, at the time that you're going through it, doesn't seem like fun, but, but later it yields peaceable fruit. And because the word peaceable, or peaceful fruit, depending on the translation, has a kind of connotation in English that is not intended by the Greek, I think. We forget that the athletic metaphor is being carried through. Uh, the author is talking about um, the kind of uh, rest <coughs> and relaxation, peace, if you will, that is enjoyed by a victorious runner. He goes, all discipline for the moment is really painful. But in the end, what does it yield? The peaceful fruit, the relaxation and rest of the victory. The peaceful fruit. But of course, here the fruit is not just the crown that might bring adulation and praise to us, but it's the crown of righteousness. It's the peaceful fruit of righteousness that we gain through the discipline of the Christian life. Discipline would not be disciplined if it were pleasant instead of painful. You've got to coach. It sends home to his boys or his girls after practice and they're all going, hey, piece of cake, that was easy. There's not much of a You've got to work them hard. Make the muscles hey, what A lack lactic acid time, right? Discipline, if it's really discipline, is painful. It's not like. By the way, it'd be nice if somebody would teach that to the people today who are in charge of our penal system. At they realize that if they're really going to correct people and they're going to discipline or chasing them, that it has to be painful. They're always looking for ways to take the pain out of punishment, but it's not punishment if it's not painful. Anyway, discipline, which is a form of punishment as well, I guess, discipline wouldn't be discipline if it weren't painful. And for the moment, it has to seem that way. But the one who benefits from the discipline, the officer. is. One who's been exercised by it finds that it's followed by joy, something he look forward to. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17 that he reckons that the sufferings of his present life are not worthy to be fulfilled, but the glory that shall be revealed in us hereafter. Our Heavenly Father's painful discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There is a definite benefit, and the benefit is going to be that of the righteousness imparted to us at the end of the Christian race and we will then be brought into perfect conformity to Christ when we see him face to face. All along, the author says, we're running toward what? For Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We're running to him. And when we get done with that race, when we've been disciplined and we are victorious in that race, then we'll be face to face with Jesus. And as 1 John 3, 2 says, when we see him, we'll be made like unto him. Today is coming a perfect run, in our lives. And we are glorified. I want to save you forever. Therefore, verse Carl says, lift up the hands to down. And down. the weak knees. The imagery of the athletic contest is continuous. You know, you watch a runner who has given up. You know how you can tell he's given up? <coughs> his body relaxes. Hands go down, his knees get, you know, rubbery. No more of the stern push, 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 push. It's just the opposite. Don't let that happen. What he actually says is he calls on us to encourage one another. <coughs> We're supposed to one another. Make each other up. He says, look up the hands that have fallen down, Strengthen the knees that have gotten rubbery here. The discouraged competitor allows his knees to get feeble, so he'll fall during the race, and he will not keep a straight course. Continuing the metaphor, make straight paths for your feet, where the language there is the language used of the, um, the runner's track. What happens to a runner when he wanders out of his track? He gets disqualified in the race, isn't it right? What if the off fell off? He makes straight paths to your feet. That which is lame, be not turned out. Now there's an argument among the Greek interpreters here whether that means the joint will come undone. You'll be out of joint. And there are impressive authorities that would support that. I think they're wrong. There's equally impressive authority. And given the metaphor here, I think what he's saying is you wander out of the course and you'll be disqualified. You'll be turned out of the race. Not that your knees will be out of joint, turned out like that, but you'll be turned out of the race because you've wandered out of the running lane. So we need to encourage each other to keep on. See an example of that in Acts 14, verse 22. Acts 14, 22. Paul and Barnabas, had a tough time with it. The Bible tells us that when they preached the gospel <clears> in that city, and that many disciples returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. That's a secret faith. Don't let your persecution get you down, because it's just through that we enter into the kingdom of God. By the way, when the author of uh, chapter 12 in Hebrews tells us to lift up the hands that hang down and to pause his knees, he's actually quoting Isaiah, the 35th chapter, verse 3. And although I'm a few minutes over here, I do want to close by looking at the context of Isaiah 35, 3, just to show you how appropriate that quotation actually is. Isaiah 35, at the third verse. Strengthen the weak hand. Confirm the feeble need. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recognition of God will come and save. Isaiah's whole point is, we have to strengthen the hands and the knees of those who would be fearful, who would be falling back, so we need to be concerned and take responsibility for other Christians to run a determined and straight race as well as ourselves. It's a real mistake to have <coughs> kind of a rugged individualist attitude towards the Christian life, especially in a time of persecution and hardship. All of us must take responsibility to run that race before us. We has called it to it. But here we he says, "Encourage one another. Hold each other up. Okay, and it's all the difference in the world when bad times come. And you have Christian brothers and sisters come up and say, I'm with you. i stand with you. What you go through, I'll go through. And we'll do it together. Okay, that gives you a lot of strength. Not as much strength as, as the Jews Jesus standing for you to be sure. But sometimes Jesus reassures us by having people come like that and say that to us. He also says, keep it up. Run the race and help one another. I really appreciate that athletic metaphor. I just want to encapsulate it for you now as close. He says, run this race to the set before you're looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who for the joy that you know, the set before him in the cross who described the, spot the He says, Don't become weary. Don't become faint hearted. Consider that your sufferings are nothing in comparison to his. Consider the one who suffered such hostility from sin. And press on firmly. Don't have um, weak knees and hands that have been let down. But rather, stay in your lane, keep looking to Jesus, and encourage one another. And then we will not fall short of entering into God's promised rest. And we will have that relaxing victor's crown, the crown of righteousness, at the end of the race. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for the encouragement of this chapter. Though it is frightening to know that you really do put us through hard times and want us to go through them, we are also comforted in knowing that you're the one who's in control of all those times. But although we don't know what the future holds for us, we have the assurance of knowing the one who holds the future. And that whatever affliction, whatever persecution we endure on behalf of Jesus, We need to work for our good. We might learn. the discipline that you want for us in our lives. Help us as we get up tomorrow to remember the race, to remember the teaching that you have tonight, that we might run even better. That not only the great cloud of witnesses about us from the old covenant might um, be emulated, but all the more that our Savior Jesus Christ would be glorified. We thank you that he despised the shame of the cross us. that he endured such hostility of sin. We thank you that he underwent that even for those who hated him, that he underwent that for us. And then we ask you to forgive us for the hatred we have shown, for the way we've fallen short of his glory, for the way we've broken his law. And we pray that the Holy Spirit might work on us, even through our hard times of affliction and persecution, to share in his holiness in his warlike conditions. So, Rick. He knows the right to be like, or going to be like,